as hell and I wanna get ill So I go to a place where my homeboys chill Fellas out there trying to make that dollar I pulled up in the six Alright everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Bored as Hell podcast I'm Adam McDonald with Big Shiny Robot And I'm Andy Wilson, also a Big Shiny Robot uh, And we've got three decently good movies for you this week uh, It's kind of nice to have a change of pace where we're not hating on one thing and loving it another uh, We've got yeah. Bad Moms, uh Batman The Killing Joke, which is based on the iconic 1980s novel, and then finally Jason Bourne, the follow-up, is it the fourth or fifth movie now? Well, it's the fourth one with Matt Damon, but it's the fifth one, the fifth one overall. Right, because they did the one with Jeremy Renner that no one cares about. Yeah, that that was the the Bourne irrelevancy. (laughs) (laughs) We should totally petition to rename that movie, The Bourne Irrelevancy. (laughs) Yes. Uh, but Andy, tell us about Bad Moms. It's like a raunchy midlife crisis movie with Mila Kunis, kind of like. Yeah, that's a that's a good way to put it. Um, Mila Kunis is Amy, and Amy is actually a very good mom, although she is constantly late, uh, taking care of her very overscheduled kids, making sure that they have great lunches. Uh, she works at a job where. Uh, even though she's only part-time, she basically keeps this coffee co-op afloat where she's surrounded by uh, a bunch of idiot millennials <laughs> who have no idea what they're doing. She's their mom. <laughs> yeah, she is. And and she's everybody's mom. Her husband's kind of checked out. Uh, he's just kind of a dude bro. Uh, and they're just kind of cruising through life. And then guess what? Things start to kind of fall apart all around Amy. And she's like, you know, I never got to be a crazy 20-year-old. I'm going to be a bad mom for a while. I'm going to stop doing all of this stuff. I'm going to stop caring about this stuff. My kids can make their own breakfast. They can do their own laundry. And I'm going to I'm gonna start and go out and drinking with my new friends, uh, who are played by Katherine Hahn and Kristen Bell. And Katherine Hahn is absolutely the best thing about this movie. <laughs> she is, isn't she? The stuff that comes out of that woman's mouth, I was like, oh my god. And and she is quintessentially the bad mom. She spends the whole movie like bad mouthing her kid and what an idiot he is. And then and then Kristen Bell is like the shut in mom who for some reason is never allowed to leave the house and she just like by total happenstance meets up with them at a PTA meeting. She's like, oh, I don't get out much. And then they all go drinking and wackiness ensues. So the other best part of this movie is they end up butting heads with Christina Applegate, uh, who plays Gwendolyn, the queen bee of the school. She's essentially kind of like a grown-up mean girls, uh, right down to having a a gaggle of of skanks that that follow her around. One of whom is Jada Pinkett Smith. Oh. I, I liked in this, and I, I really have not liked her in anything she's ever done. Um, but all I gotta say is, Christina Applegate, you magnificent bitch. <laughs> oh you my were just gosh. so wonderful being this evil, manipulative, just conniving woman. And again, when you're on the screen or Catherine Hahn's on the screen, both of you just immediately steal this, the show. I, I have something kind of crazy to say about this. Adam, do you think... This might be, if not the best thing, the best role Christina Applegate has ever done. Definitely one of. It's one of, I would say, I still loved her completely in The Sweetest Thing. Mm-hmm. Which, is, again, it's kind of the same vein as this type of movie. 
Um, but no, I, I would say it's definitely one of the best things she's ever done, easily. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So uh, this, she's absolutely glorious. And so the the two of them butt heads, and she's Miss Perfect right down to uh, Martha Stewart makes a cameo uh, showing up. And <laughs> oh my gosh. Martha Stewart is great in this. So there, and it's kind of a glorification of being a bad mom. And it's very funny. The, the writers uh, and directors are the same guys who wrote The Hangover. They obviously know how to make a raunchy comedy. And here's where I start to have a little bit of a problem with this movie is these, these guys are kind of a one trick pony in my opinion, when it comes to this film. One of the best things that they do is they put together these hilarious montages set to very summer 2016 music and uh, of, of these moms going crazy. They do it once, it's very funny. They do it the second time, still funny. They do it a third time and you're like, wait a minute, this is the third musical montage in, like, a half hour. Yeah. And then we get a fourth musical montage, and you're just like, okay, okay, we get it. We get it. But these are, like, four, uh, four, five, six, like, separately connected music videos and vignettes rather than a really strong, cohesive comedy. Uh, my, my drama teacher in high school was very fond of saying... There's a difference between comedy and doing funny things. Mm -hmm. It felt to me like a lot of this movie was doing funny things rather than being comedy that comes from uh, character and theme and things like that. So uh, it was, I think it was overall good, but I felt it had some weaknesses. Well, and, and yeah, this is, it's, there's no way it, it's not here to be anything deep or special or meaningful. I mean, it does kind nope. of have some touching moments where, even when Catherine Hahn says horrible things about her son, and then she starts crying because she realizes he's growing up and is going to leave. And it's it's tender, it's touching in some parts, but really, it's just to get a bunch of funny ladies together to say the f word and talk about sex. Yep. It's it's like if the Golden Girls were all like thirty years younger. And they could do an R-rated movie. <laughs> I, I, I feel like this is what their lives would be like. I don't know. It's it is really funny. There is you know there are some problems like you mentioned with the musical montages. Uh, I'm also kind of it's hard to suspend my disbelief that Mila Kunis, one of the most gorgeous women on earth, would be married to a schlub like the guy in the movie who. Yeah. And also, what we didn't mention was he's cheating on her with like this online dating app or something like that and. That, that wasn't really believable, but, you know, it's a lot of fun. I think, uh, you know, it, it's, it's kind of funny to look back now that I'm an adult and all my most of my friends have kids, and seeing, knowing them when they're with their kids and knowing them when they're not with their kids, to kind of see how they're almost different people, because obviously you can't say or do certain things in front of your kids that you would have wanted your friends. Mm -hmm. And it makes me wonder if our parents were the same way or if our generation is just a lot different <laughs> than what our parents were like. Yeah, but, I wonder. Well, I I know what my parents were doing, and so <clears throat> I'm I, well, no my comment. Parents were, my parents were very, very you know conservative and very you know. So I, I I'm pretty sure they weren't like that, but it just it's kind of fun to look and think. Hmm, I wonder if it was like that back in the day. But no, it's a fun movie. You're just there to see funny ladies say horrible things, um, and and that's the, that's it. There doesn't need to be any more depth to it. It's entirely predictable. 
But again, you kind of went in knowing that you weren't expecting anything different. So I had a lot of fun with it. Uh, yeah. I'm at an 8 out of 10 just because I laughed my ass off the entire time. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little lower. I'm I'm at like a, a six and a half out of ten. Um, it's funny that you mentioned the Golden Girls because I think the other thing that this movie really drew upon was that kind of raunchy 80s sex comedy mm-hmm. that was always like centered around guys. And, oh, we're going to summer camp or, um, you know... Whatever, or porkies, whatever. Or, or porkies. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And the this movie is about as realistic and about as heartfelt as those films are, uh, and and I think will also be remembered in kind of the same vein that they're funny and but I don't think there's any like lasting. Uh, this isn't going to be your next comedy classic. Is, no, is we're not. We're not going to sit back twenty years from now reminiscing about Bad Moms. Um, no. What I would I would be interested to see because it is it was written by men and they do a really good job of writing these great lines for these women. But you could almost tell if the way that everything's presented it was that it was how men perceive that wives would act. So yeah. I would really like to see a version of this, uh, maybe written by you know a woman, so like Amy Schumer or something like that, or you know. Uh, yeah, and phenomenal Tina Fey, someone out there who understands how to write for a woman and can do maybe a better job of presenting it from their point of view and not just what we expect that point of view to be. Well, and I I compare it to last summer's train wreck and sleeping with other people, written and and directed by men or by women. I I think that when you compare these two, it it is just done better when you know you write what you know and these are a couple of dude bros writing about you know going to PTA meetings so i think yeah yeah there's there's only there's only so much in it but that being said it's funny and and you should definitely go get together with your girlfriends and and go see this it it really is a lot of fun stay through the credits because the stars and their moms sit there and talk mm-hmm. about their moms talk about what horrible mothers they were and yeah. it's really funny so uh, uh, you know I, I've said this about some other movies that the the best part were the credits and I don't mean that in the like oh, I liked it when it stopped it the credits were incredibly funny and and worth sticking around for. So so good on you, Bad Moms. Thanks for being not bad. Yeah, Bad Moms was fun. Definitely check it out um, and take your girlfriends. You'll have a, a fun time. Uh, now, Batman: The Killing Joke, on the other hand, uh, it's a little bit more serious, I guess you could say. A little and darker. Just a little just darker a smidge. Than Bad Moms. <laughs> so this is based off the iconic graphic novel written by Alan Moore back in the eighties, and this. Story, you know, there's a lot of discussion, and we'll probably get into a little bit of it about whether this is something that should be dated and left behind in the dustbin of obscurity for its treatment of women, or if it deserves to be hailed as a classic. Um, if you look at the Tim Burton Batman movie from the 80s, this they took the uh, story of the Joker's origin from this book and put it there. Uh, the new movie, the newer movie, The Dark Knight, the whole premise of what the Joker is doing as far as you know, we're only we're all only one bad day away from madness. Again, stems from this book, 
And as far as the, the treatment from comic to movie goes, it's 100% faithful. It's probably the best uh, adaptation I've ever seen from comic to movie. It so, really is. Yeah, I mean, it's got scenes lifted directly from the comic. I mean, it's a different art style, of course, but it, the words are the exact same words in the comic. Uh, shot by shot, there's so many iconic moments that are just pictured perfectly. Uh, but basically what this is about is the Joker gets free and Batman realizes that it's going to come to a point where one of them is going to kill the other one. And he really doesn't want to do that. And But the Joker also doing what he does best is you know, trying to cause madness and mayhem. He goes and visits Jim Gordon and his daughter Barbara. And Barbara, as we know, is Cap, uh, Batgirl, excuse me. And he shoots her in the spine, paralyzes her, possibly sexually assaults her. It's never really, it's alluded to, but it's never specifically said. All the meanwhile, he's kidnapped Jim Gordon, and he's using all this stuff to try to basically drive him mad. Again, the whole point is that we're all one step away from madness. Uh, so it's very dark, very foreboding. Uh, it's very, very well acted, though. Uh, it brings back the original cast of the animated series. Uh, Tara Strong as Batgirl, Kevin Conroy as Batman, and... Mark Hamill is the Joker, so they're all pitch perfect and amazing, and that part of the film is fantastic. The problem is, it's a very, very, very short book, and so you've only got about 40 minutes of the actual story going into this, so they tried to flesh out Barbara Gordon's <clears throat> story a little bit more with an opening 26-minute act that has her sparring with and training with Batman and eventually sleeping with him, and this has brought up a lot of consternation and a lot of uh, controversy about whether she should be sleeping with him or not, uh, and the fact that she kind of pines after him like a lovelorn teenager. Um, I don't know, Andy, what, what, what's your take on this? Because I've been going off for a while now. Yeah, yeah uh, I agree with you 100% about the killing joke part. I, I mean, the animation is gorgeous, like 10 out of 10. The voice acting, amazing, 10 out of 10. This first act, um, I, I don't know whether it makes the problematic aspects of the Killing Joke story better or worse. It's almost like screenwriter Brian, Brian Azzarello heard the complaints, oh, here Barbara Gordon is only here as a victim of violent crime to make the Joker and Jim Gordon and Batman uh, move forward in their storyline. She's just victimized. Uh, she's refrigerated, which is a, a term that is often used in in comic books, uh, this idea of women in refrigerators. This idea came from Gail Simone, who is a comic book writer, talking about how comic books often treat its female characters. And I don't know whether this opening 26 minutes makes Barbara more or less of a victim. And that's kind of the problem. That being said, on its own, like, if this was just, like, a 26-minute episode of the Batman animated series, I, I, th I found it kind of interesting. Not only that, I kind of really fell for Barbara Gordon. Um, mm -hmm. Tara Strong was just amazing here. Uh, and, and her voice work is, is as amazing as always. And... She's been associated with, with the animated series for a long time. She she pioneered the character of Harley Quinn. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, she is Harley Quinn as far as I'm concerned. And uh, she's just absolutely amazing. I didn't have a problem with the sex. I think the sex is fine. Because I 
I felt like it was very real, you know? Like, we sometimes have relationships with coworkers. And I don't mean we as in, like, that's something I've experienced. I mean, that's, like, part of the human... Part of the human condition, right? We we have a coworker. Maybe you have someone at work who is emotionally distant, but you kind of want to hook up with them, and there's sexual tension, and you act on it, and it's a mistake, and there's awkwardness. I think that is an interesting story, and and I don't think that that is necessarily part of the problem. The problem is it doesn't fix any of the issues with the killing joke. Uh, in, in many ways, it takes this now well-developed character and says, oh yeah, we're just going to toss her in the dustbin. And um, that, is, that is in some ways even worse. So I, I don't know. I feel like they could have approached this far better. Um, it, in my mind what I would have liked to have seen them do is cut down the opening act a little bit to maybe 10, 15 minutes and then tacked on an extra 20 minutes afterwards, uh, an epilogue that is a birds mm-hmm. of prey story with, with Barbara Gordon as the Oracle and dealing with victimhood and trying to bring in the same themes as the killing joke. I felt like, the opening act was thematically very different. It didn't have any of the themes that Killing Joke is really all about. And I feel like if they could have interwoven all three of those stories together, it would have made this a more cohesive story and could have been um, a great story about about survival and being stronger than violence against women and, and how you deal with the aftermath of that. Um, but they chose not to do that. The opening, I mean, the opening story is actually really interesting. It's about she's she's tracking an app, uh, tracking down this gangster who has a very unhealthy obsession with her. Like starts giving her little gifts and stuff. His and, name is Paris Franz. Yeah, oh my gosh! Come on, that was. I don't know whether that was the best thing about him or the worst. It was just like, oh, he's awful. Like from the very beginning, when you find out that's his name, you're just like, oh, this suck. guy. He's, but, uh, he's like straight <laughs> off of Reddit, you know. Like <laughs> this is was, one of those guys. Like, he was one of the guys on there complaining about Ghostbusters. It, you know, the, the bad Batman's warning her. Like, no, he's like, no, you need to stay away from this. This person is taking an unhealthy obsession with you, and and she fights back as far as like, well, no, you can't tell me what to do. I'm I'm a woman. I can do what I want, and this and that. And so, I mean, that I, that part of the story is great. And then the whole idea. He actually there's a really cool scene where. Batman mentions to her about, you know, there comes a point where you stare into the abyss, and then the question becomes, do you become the abyss, or do you step back and not do that? And then that's kind of the choice that she makes, which I think is a very powerful statement that she was stronger than Batman was, that she could, she had the ability to see that, oh my god, if I continue down this route, I'm going to become a person that's I don't want to be, so I need to stop doing this or, or take a different path in life, and that's a great part of it, too. And again, I didn't, the sex part, I didn't mind either. In fact, uh, Tara Strong took to Twitter recently because people were asking, like, you know, what's up with the bad sex? Why did she have sex with Batman? This and that, and blah, blah, blah. And she simply said, quote, because she's a grown woman and that's what she wanted. End quote. Damn right. Mic drop. That's, that's it. That's, 
hey, that's what she wanted. She's allowed to yeah. have what she wants. Yep. The, the part that was kind of more annoying was, yes, like you mentioned before, the whole, if you slept with a co-worker, maybe it's something you shouldn't have done. There's that kind of awkward tension later on. And that's kind of played out more to her detriment than Batman's, kind of like how she, there's one scene where she's like, oh, relax, Bruce, it was just sex. But she's acting like it's more than that. So it kind of turns into her pining for this older dude kind of thing. And that was, eh. But, like I said, my biggest problem with that opening 26 minutes is it had nothing to do with what came after. And like you had mentioned, had it actually been its own separate thing, it would have made a lot more sense as like an episode of the animated series and not the opening act of The Killing Joke. I, I also wonder, like, I'm, I'm thinking back to some of Tarantino's movies and how they're presented in acts and how, like, each act is its own, like, it's supposed to be somewhat thematically different. Like, if they would have just done that and put up a placard in between the two of them, it's like act one uh, and you you have that and then act two and then act three or act three epilogue or, yeah. or what have you. I think that would have been a better way to approach this. Um, uh, one of the things that I really loved about the first part was that I felt like Paris Franz was a, a great rumination on toxic masculinity mm-hmm. and, and how terrible that is. And, you know, Batgirl just kicks the crap out of him and it's awesome. Oh yeah. No, she and, gets her, he gets his due. <laughs> yeah. It, it, and, and so I just, I, I loved it and I wish that, I wish that they would have found a way to make it work better with the other material to make it all work. That being said, you know, one of the things that, that I've been thinking about with Killing Joke and uh, wrote about fairly extensively on, on Big Shiny Robot is I don't think that there is a way to get rid of the misogynistic sexist elements of this and, and Barbara Gordon's victimization. And I kind of think we shouldn't try to. Uh, I, I think that we need to look at the killing joke as a product of its time and the same way we do with something like uh, the racism of Huckleberry Finn mm-hmm. or Gone with the Wind or you know other great literature that has very problematic elements in it that we can look back at and say that wasn't right but this is still valuable as a commentary and a representation of the time period that it came out of. And and so I think that that needs to be the way that we need to start thinking about Killing Joke rather than deifying it. Uh, I mean, it, it truly is one of the greatest Batman stories ever told, perhaps the most iconic Batman story. And, and so it's great to see it put on screen uh, and... It's it's just too bad that um, they couldn't quite figure out a way to make it work, but I just don't think you can. Well, and and one thing that people need to keep in mind is, you know, we know the Joker as this evil megalomaniac murderer who will do whatever it takes to fulfill his twisted desires, you know, whatever that his purpose is. But before the Killing Joke. You know, the Joker was the clown prince of crime. I think the worst thing he really ever did was go rob a bank. You know, he wasn't this evil person. 
So Killing Joke was the first time we actually got the glimpse of, like, holy crap, this guy is seriously twisted. Uh, and it did give us, you know, the backstory of how he became the Joker. It's the one, they, the same one they pretty much used in the Tim Burton's Batman, with the exception that he wasn't some crime lord. He was just a two-bit comedian. And who, you know, who, through a series of unfortunate events and unfortunate decisions he made, you know, fell into a vat of acid, became disfigured, and now is going after Batman. But... You know, it, my thing with this is that the reason why he went after Jim Gordon's family was he wanted to turn, basically, you know, drive him Jim mad. And the fact that he shot Barbara, I think for me at least the way I read it, and especially considering that six months later, back in 1988, was when we had death in the family, which is where the Joker beats Jason Todd to death with a crowbar. Uh, you know, he's going after the people and people's families to again, make a point and try to drive them closer and closer to him, make them like him. And he's going to go after them just based on their relationship and not so much on whether they're male, female, black, white, straight, gay, anything else. It doesn't really matter to him. He's just that crazy and that messed up that he will do whatever it takes to drive people to that extreme. So it's looking at it and seeing like, yes, it was a very horrible comic and horrible, horrible things happened to a female character in the comic and also in the movie. The, the question I've brought up before and is due to the fact that he did this, he did even, you know, even worse six months later, is this really about the fact that she's a woman or is it about the fact that it was just happened to be his daughter? I, Does that I make think, sense? Oh, yeah, totally. And I, in my mind, I think the answer is both. I think that they're both equally valid. Um, I, I don't know the exact quote, but according to Alan Moore... Uh, when he proposed this storyline to the head of DC, um, the head of DC came back to him saying, "Like, oh yeah, let's let's kill the bitch, or you know, something oh, to that." Oh, really cripple the bitch was what. Yeah. I didn't think. But again, but, that's but, also from Alan Moore. And I Alan Moore. Wizards and so. So, uh, and like the Joker, uh, he may or may not be an unreliable narrator in this story. <laughs> so, huh, uh, so take that for what it's worth, but. I, I think that it can be that, that yes, that is the, how the Joker is, but it can also be reflective of underlying misogyny, whether it is intentional or not. It doesn't have to be intentional to be misogynistic. Oh, no, and I, uh, I fully agree yeah. with that. And, and so, yeah. I'm in no way trying to downplay that because, I mean, that's, you know, there's a lot of, again debate about whether or not he sexually assaulted her or if he was just, you know, trying to, you know, put off that he did to, again, mess with people's heads. And it's almost like I, I get really tired of the cliche that, oh, well, how are we going to totally, like, you know, destroy this woman's life? Oh, let's rape her. You know, that's... Yeah. It seems like it's a common theme, and it's like, really? Like, I don't know. It just That's always bugged me, and... It doesn't. It doesn't change my my fact of how I feel about this and what could or could may not have happened. Um, but it's kind of like you know, why even go there? Yeah, it, that's and that's the whole point of women in refrigerators and and Gail Simone's critique of violence towards women. That so often it's like it's a it's a cheap trick to get from A to B, and when you victimize a woman. 
as a cheap trick to move a plot forward, that's maybe not the best thing to do. So let's let let's uh, let's think outside the box, and maybe we don't need to to involve rape or sexual assault or or violence uh, against women to make the point that we that we want to make. Um, and I, I mean that's a, a we had a very very good panel at the last uh, Salt Lake Comic Con fan experience, which uh, you know our often co-host Brooke Heim was on this panel, and it was about the comic book Bitch Planet by Kelly Sue DeConnick, and uh, some of our friends from the Hello Sweetie podcast, and, and Deborah Jensen, and a couple of other great folks, and and I asked them, like, how do we deal with rape as an issue in popular media? There are some who say we should never have it be depicted. Um, and there are some who say that it is all right as long as it isn't used as a way to further a male storyline. And the panelists all kind of agreed that, you know, as long... Like, it's yes and no. That there, uh, It's kind of one of those, I know it when I see it. And I know when there's a problematic usage, and I know when there's a not problematic usage. Right. The problem is, is ninety percent of the time, it's problematic. And how do we how do we fix that? So um, I, I think the that's what's so interesting about the Killing Joke, and why a comic that is twenty years old at this point, uh, you know, is something that we're still debating and discussing. Yeah, it's and that's again that's why I do say it is the, one of the most iconic Batman stories ever because it, it literally changed the whole DC universe. I mean, you've got Oracle, you've got Birds of Prey, and you've got a lot of storylines that you never would have been possible had it not stemmed from this. But like I said, there's a lot to discuss. I, I do enjoy the fact that it is bringing about people, it is bringing these kind of discussions up where they may not have happened before. And anything yeah. that kind of opens up that kind of dialogue even if it's done in a disturbing way, is good. Uh, but yeah, overall, it, it's a really good movie. The opening act doesn't fit tonally, but it is probably the most uh, true-to-form representation of a comic I've ever seen brought to to a movie. Uh, I'm at a 7 out of 10. I'd be higher. Again, I just that opening 26 minutes really doesn't belong there. It's a decent story, but it feels like it should be somewhere else. Yeah, and I'm, I'm in exactly the same place. I... I, I know what I wanted out of this, and I got most of it, but, man, I, I had the opportunity to see this on a big screen. You got a chance to see it on a big mm-hmm. screen. It is really, really beautiful, and I can't understate that, and, and it's just it's great to have Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill and Tara Strong working with Bruce Timm again, and... Anytime those people are together working, there's some magic there, and and that's definitely sprinkled all over Batman: The Killing Joke. It just it doesn't quite do what I think it needs to to be as good as it should be. Yeah, and it's also it, it's one that even though I, I will buy it when it comes out uh, on Tuesday, uh, it's not one I'm going to watch over and over again because. I mean, it is that intense and it is that disturbing. It is. And I'm very, very happy that they, they did go and give it an R rating because this is not something that kids should be watching. It definitely... Oh, no. It, it, it earns its R rating. I mean, it's not from language. I mean, there is 
you know, so there's some violence, it's mainly people getting shot, and even that's not horribly graphic, uh, but just the subject matter and just how twisted everything is, it's definitely meant for a more mature audience. Definitely. Yeah, don't don't let your kids watch this. Now, you can let your kids watch Jason Bourne, especially if they've seen the first four. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's nothing really, well, definitely not compared to the killing joke is objectionable <laughs> in here. This is your fairly typical uh, PG-13 spy movie um, told in the same world of Jason Bourne. Jason Bourne, who was a, a former CIA operative who uh, worked in their black ops program called Treadstone. And uh, in the first movie, he fails in one of his missions, wakes up an amnesiac, can't remember who he is, and has to piece his life back together and figure out who he is and why the CIA is after him. Uh, over the last three, four movies, he's figured this out and, and his background. And the last we saw of him, uh, the CIA thought that they might have killed him and he was dead in a river. Then at the end of the fourth movie, we see that he actually swam off and that he was okay. <laughs> Jason Bourne's been living underground, off the grid. Um, the CIA's kind of kept tabs on him, though, because they know he's still out there and they know that he's still a threat. Other people have kept tabs on him, too, including one of his former Treadstone colleagues, Nikki, who is played by Julia Stiles. Turns out that she has hacked the CIA for... Uh, one of these Julian Assange type hackers who wants to put all of the CIA's secrets out on the web and she says before I give them to this hacker you need to see all of the files on Treadstone because the CIA was keeping tabs on you even before they recruited you into the system Yep. and, uh, and there's a lot there that has to do with his father and uh and of course, then Jason Bourne does what Jason Bourne does and takes the fight directly to the CIA when <laughs> they start messing around with his life. He kind of just wants to be left alone at this point, and uh, they can't do that. The CIA here is led by Tommy Lee Jones, uh, who we saw in the last couple of movies, and he's aided by their new head of uh, cybersecurity, who is played by Alicia Vikander, who is just fabulous here. Both of the two of them are really great. Um, their new deal is they've been partnering with a Silicon Valley tech giant uh, to do all sorts of crazy surveillance with um, with the internet. On Basically, every conspiracy theory you've heard about Pokemon Go. <laughs> That's the easiest way to explain it. Yeah, that is true. That is the easiest way to explain it. Um, that's exactly what's going on. So while they are rolling out uh, this new program, uh, they've got Jason Bourne uh, trying to hunt them down. And uh, there are all sorts of chases and explosions and people getting shot. And Matt Damon punching people and knocking them out. Knocking them out with one punch like Jason Bourne does. So... Uh, Oh, and another uh, one of their super-powered uh, black ops operatives is also chasing Bourne and has a personal vendetta against him and really wants him dead. So, there's that. Um, it, the, what can I say about this? This is a Jason Bourne movie. <laughs> if, if you like Jason Bourne, this movie has Jason Bourne in it. 
It's set in the world of Jason Bourne, and it's very Jason Bourne-y. It's a Jason Bourne-y movie, yes. It, it <laughs> definitely is, and that's why it's called Jason Bourne. In case you didn't like the last one that didn't have Jason Bourne in it, even though it had Bourne in it, this one has Jason Bourne, and that's all you need to know. And that's the main reason to go see it. Um, I, other than that, I, I thought it was just kind of like, yeah, it's pretty good. It's not amazing. It doesn't really break any new ground. But hey, it's great to see Matt Damon playing this role, and it's always fun to see him punch stuff. So, yeah, it's again, if you're a fan of the series, you're gonna love this. Uh, I think it was a, it felt a little dumber than the ones that have come before. A little. <laughs> it was. It was more about, you know, punching, shooting, and explosions. Uh, I I know it's a kind of a trademark in the series to have the really like up close and personal, like almost handy cam kind of view of the fights and oh yeah, makes it feel like you're part of the action. It really gets overused here. I it, when it gets to the point that it doesn't even seem like it's when it gets to the point that it seems like every single shot for like a half an hour is a jerky handy cam scene. It, it, it's getting a bit overused, and uh, as many will know, there's uh, the movie The Blues Brothers set the record for the most number of car crashes in one scene. I think at the end of this, when it feels like they let Michael Bay take over for the last 20 minutes, Little they were bit. trying to outdo that record. Yep. <laughs> um, and of course, they had to have their you know this huge SWAT van being overtaken by a Dodge Charger because you know product placement. Um, yeah, it's it's a fun movie. It's a dumb movie. It's not, you know, if you weren't a fan, it's not going to change your mind. Uh, but there are worse ways to go out there and spend two hours cooling off out of the heat. Totally. And that's one of the things that I loved about, especially the first two Bourne movies. Uh, the in, in the Bourne identity, they do this great car chasing. And I think that's one of the best car chases in any movie in, in the last, like, 15 years. Okay, maybe Drive. Yeah, maybe yeah, there's there's some great stuff in Drive, but Born Identity, there's a great car chase scene. In the second movie, there's a great chase scene through the streets of Moscow. In both cases, they're driving these like great Eastern European clown cars. Oh yeah, <laughs> and it's like kind of funny because they're driving like a maniac in these like uh, really kind of underpowered uh, clown cars, and uh, so to change it out and then do what was very very obviously product placement i just i it it bugs me when the product placement takes me out of the movie mm-hmm. i don't mind that jason bourne gets to drive a dodge charger i hate that they they turn it into a commercial for a dodge charger for a little while and and that really bugged me. Uh, I, I felt like this movie also both simultaneously over and underestimated the technical capabilities of our federal government and the Central Intelligence Agency. <laughs> it's like, um, I, do you remember the movie The Net with Sandra Bullock? Oh, where, how like, can I forget? Yeah, with like <laughs> one keystroke, she could like press a delete button and her entire identity is erased from the internet because... That's how the internet works, and well, I. I, I <laughs> well, but uh, this movie treats uh, the the spycraft in a lot of the same way. It's like a uh, run predictive algorithm, press button, and predictive algorithm tells me who the terrorists are who are going to be involved in this 
There's gotta be a back door. Okay, back. All right, cool. Password. Hmm, Fifty trillion combinations. Jeff. Okay, I'm in. Good. I got it. Yeah, it's like it's so dumb sometimes with the tech part. And one of the things I liked about the earlier Born movies is it it didn't get caught up on that, even though there were there were definitely like techno thriller aspects to it. Um, and and I feel that this got bogged down in some of that in in the same way that uh, the movie Black Hat with Chris Hemsworth had a real problems with dealing with hacking and, and showing how that works. It's like, we gotta find a way to keep that stuff off screen because it doesn't translate well. Oh, another example, uh, Diana Prince, Wonder Woman, like, looking through the files in Batman v Superman, right? Oh, they just... have to be so conveniently and nicely named. Uh, it's just so... Oh, and all of them have their own icon that tells you exactly who they are. Anyway, we're not talking about Batman v Superman, I'm talking about Bourne. But it's the <laughs> same sort of kind of stupid filmmaking that, where that's how they think computers work and I, it just bugs me because I'm like, can I can we just get back to Matt Damon punching stuff and I'll be okay. Well, another thing to keep in mind, too, is, you know, back you mentioned the net, and of course, Hackers, which is... Oh, Hackers! Yes! Gloriously, a gloriously horrible movie that I love dearly. Uh, that was actually the first DVD I ever saw with Hackers. Um, you know, back then, you know, people didn't understand computers, they didn't understand the internet, so you could put up there that, oh, the internet's really like a big city, and files are buildings, and you travel down the streets, and blah, 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 and you ate it up because no one knew better. But, uh... You know, we're most of us are millennials or zennials or whatever you want to call us. We've been grown, we've grown up with computers. We know how things work, how the internet works, and it's very obviously not this. That being said, I I always have kind of a soft spot for computers can do anything in movies. <laughs> sure. Um, so it didn't really bug me too much, but yeah, it was definitely moments that were I would definitely chuckle and be like, oh yeah, whatever. But the one part that did get me, I was sitting there with some friends of mine, and the scene. <laughs> The, the big car chase at the end, it just, it was getting so much more over the top and bigger and grander, and eventually when it finally climaxes, when they crash through this building, we just started uproariously laughing. Like, yeah. it was just so over the top stupid. Uh, again, it, it wasn't bad, it wasn't unenjoyable, but it was just like, we just couldn't stop laughing. I, I was going for about five minutes, I just couldn't stop giggling. Oh, I had a good time. <laughs> but it just, it was, it was a little more silly and less serious than I than I like Jason Bourne to be. It kind of um, felt like James Bond's stupid little brother. Well, you know, and and Bond had that problem where for a long time Bond got really dumb and really campy too. And this this never like falls into that camp, but no. it feels like it might be slouching towards it and I don't want Jason Bourne to go that way. Like le- let's keep it back to what we like, which is Matt Damon punching things. <laughs> I think I've said that like seven times. Like I feel like that's the that's the thing that that brings me back to Jason Bourne of why it's cool. It's like you get to see little Matt Damon like take down two German cops with like three punches, and it's like, oh, all right. Well, to be fair, it does open with a scene where he punches a guy and knocks him out with one hit. So yeah, exactly. Right. The first two minutes of the movie. So yeah, um, it's fun. Again, I think fun and dumb is the biggest thing we can say about this. I'm at a seven out of ten. 
I'm probably not ever going to see it again, but I'm not sad that I watched it. Uh, 7 out of 10, we will end up buying this and putting it next to our other Bourne movies, which we will watch the next time another Bourne movie comes out to revisit all of them, and <laughs> we'll just and, and we'll watch the first two Bourne movies and remember how much we love them. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll eventually see this. But there's Back nothing. Back in my day, Bourne was a badass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this definitely sets it up for more sequels. So. Uh, I think I think Jason Bourne will be back uh, for better or for worse. Hopefully for better, and and maybe Paul Greengrass can figure out how to use a little bit less shaky cam. Probably not. <laughs> it's like trying to convince J.J. Abrams to use less lens flare. <laughs> yes, exactly. I I so. think it's it's that much as part of their uh, their cinematic style. Or trying to convince Michael Bay to make good movies. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but anyways, that'll take it to the end of the week for us. Uh, next week, it's just Suicide Squad. I don't think there's a really big opening. I know we're all excited to see it. Uh, it's been previewed heavily, and it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. So I hope so. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I'm excited for it. I, I think it's going to be cool. So If not, well, we'll let you know in a week. But until then, hail Satan, and have a lovely afternoon. Punk ass tripping, but it's all right. Homie scored a key, he's gonna fly